Hello, hello. My name's Greg Bettinelli. I'm a partner here at Upfront, here with Layla Sturdy. Hi, everyone. So, Layla, I really appreciate you being here. We have about 20 minutes and excited to have a conversation. Um, I have a whole notepad here so we can go all day, but I wanted to just take a step back and just give us the lay of the land regards to how Alphabet thinks about venture, private market investing, your business, others, just to kind of get us all level set on, on how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually, investing was a big part of the reason the Alphabet structure was set up many years ago. So it actually came from Larry and Sergey and some of the board and, and senior Google people from way back in the day. And they were thinking about what are the ways that Google Alphabet can use their resources, their people, um, money, infrastructure to help build the next great technology companies. And the idea was some of those companies would be built inside of the Alphabet um, family as part of Google or separate business units. And the idea was also that we could build out robust investing arms that could help invest in and then partner with the next generation of startups that um, can work in different industries and can take advantage of some of the, not just capital from Google and Alphabet, but other resources, advisors, people. So that is why uh, you see within Alphabet, there's a pretty significant commitment to investing. We have several different funds, there's GV, Gradient, um, Alphabet makes investments off the balance sheet, and then there's a fund where I'm a general partner, which is Capital G, and we're focused on growth investing. So all of these different funds were set up because we believe there's different disciplines and different capabilities associated with different stages of investing, different um, mandates, but all were involved in just this broader commitment to supporting the startup ecosystem and helping create the next generational companies. So four different entities within Alphabet. Yeah. Just, you can share what you can share. How many people work, you think, in those four entities? And then what does the size look like for Capital G? Yeah, so with Capital G, we have about 40 people. Um, we invest about a billion dollars a year um, in, as I said, growth stage companies. Probably within the, the various other investment arms, there's you know, 100, 200 people overall. So as we know, investing arms, compared to the overall scale of the number of people that work at Alphabet, relatively small number of people, but managing a pretty significant amount of capital. And do, if you dig in a little bit or double click, I should say, on Capital G, are most of the 40 people come from Google and Alphabet over time? Like you were at Alphabet for a long period of time before. Does that tend to be the migration? Or yeah, bring- so it, not really. Um, that was sort of an interesting, and when we were getting Capital G started, um, we had one of the founding principles on, on starting Capital G was that we really wanted to build a diverse team. And so our initial three general partners, as Greg mentioned, I had spent my entire career on the operating side, so I had never invested before. This was about eight and a half years ago. My um, other partner who started the fund, David Lowey, had run corporate development at Google for a number of years, had run marketing at Google before that. And then our third partner had been at TPG for a couple decades. So we brought together a very diverse set of operational and investing skill sets. And we thought that was, and I really do believe that was foundational, especially in the early years of getting Capital G off the ground, of really building the discipline of our investment committee. Uh, you know, TPG had a 
pretty robust set of diligence processes and, you know, analytical capabilities that, um, that Gene could bring to bear and, and sort of training up our team and thinking through our investment committee. I had a lot of experience. I, operating. I'd helped start a couple different businesses within Google, and David had his operating experience as well. So in the early days, we were really focused on how do we build the most diverse team that we can uh, to support entrepreneurs at the growth stage. And we sort of knew we were building, we had the advantage of having the Google brand and Google as an LP, but we had to build our reputation as investors, and we had to build our portfolio from scratch. So we were committed to being you know, the most helpful partners we could and we felt like building that diverse team was a really important part of it. So over time, as we've been around now uh, eight or nine years, I'd say we still really try to bring operators and entrepreneurs and help teach them the craft as in, of investing the same way that I learned it um, and believe that that's really important, especially in the growth stage because the sort of empathy you need and, and experience of supporting entrepreneurs if you've had operating experience, I think it can be really helpful. Um, but you also need a, a lot of discipline. I mean, the, the diligence process and how you underwrite investments when you're investing $100 million or $200 million in a company is, is um, pretty significant. So you need that set of skills as well. She was taking a picture of my shoes. Excellent. Let us know if for Greg's wife. We that was very awkward. Point, but. <laughs> so what's the, the, how would you sell me on the capital G secret sauce? Like why, and we'll get to where the markets are going. Are you starting a company? Because I, I mean. You know, all VCs want to be operators and all operators want to be VCs. Like, I love it. No. Uh, yeah, so the secret sauce, um, so what's different about us is that Google and Alphabet are a single LP. So lovely to meet all the LPs in the room. I, I only talk to one um, right now, which is, is fun. Um, but what we do is we're an independent investment fund. So as the general partners, we make, we have the same incentives that any other independent investment fund would have. We have uh, decision-making authority on our investments, um, but the advantage is we have a really flexible holding period because Alphabet's very patient capital, and we also have uh, a network of 100,000 people that work at Google and Alphabet that engage with our companies and help support our companies in a lot of really interesting ways. So there's all sorts of examples we could share about that, but for example, we have tons of cybersecurity investments where we have long-time Googlers in cybersecurity that work as advisors to our fund. We have deep partnerships with Google Cloud who help on the go-to-market side. Um, we have, you know, as you can imagine, Google knows a thing or two about marketing and scaling marketing and sales channels. So we found that there's just a really deep talent pool within Google who, I always joke, you know, they're paid too well to leave and they still believe Google's a startup in many ways, even though we all know it's far from that. But they have a lot of entrepreneurial energy energy and a, a desire to help bring their expertise, whatever it could be, optimizing AdWords campaigns or, you know, uh, building data infrastructure, data science. And um, we bring them as advisors and, and sort of free sweat equity to our companies. And we have found that being able to organize that labor force, you know, lots of people, other venture funds build that within their team, but that can only go so far. Um, some are pushing the limits of how far that can go. Um, we find it that, that it's been a really scalable model to hire operations 
folks on our team who help organize that sort of specialized uh, labor, for lack of a better word. And it's, so it's been really fun on all sides because I feel like we've also really been able to give back to people that work at Google who are looking to develop skills, learn more about the ecosystem outside of the mothership. And um, our companies have loved it. So it's been, it's been a really fun, it was a thesis when we started it out. And then it's been a really rewarding thing to build over the last you know, eight or nine years. And what's Layla Sturdy's area of expertise and focus? When you look at today's market, even yesteryear or looking forward, what's, yeah. what do you like to spend your time? So um, what I love about investing is that I love the chance to learn new things and the way that I've kind of managed my whole career, why I loved Google, honestly, and why when people ask me, what companies should you join? I'm like, join growth stage companies because companies that are growing 100% year on year, they'll always let you new, do new, new things. So, you know, when I was working at Google, when we acquired YouTube and I ended up, I saw my old YouTube friends and in the audience that we were chatting earlier, like got to manage a sales team. I'd never sold anything in my life. Um, it just, you know, helped launch AdWords Express, which is a new um, product for Google way back in the day and I'd never served SMB customers. So my whole operating career, I loved learning new things and I've treated investing in the same way. I kind of spend 18 or 24 months going deep in different areas. So when I first transitioned to investing, I did a lot of consumer and SMB and then I moved into sort of FinTech and enterprise and then everyone else moved into enterprise. So I moved back into consumer and e-commerce when I thought prices got really crazy. So we do very deep thesis work at Capital G. We, you know, we spend um, months researching uh, companies, talking to customers, I was joking with someone in the hallway because they were asking me how we got into our most recent deal. And he said to me, like, you know, people are asking me how you guys got in. And I said, what did you tell him? And, and he said, I told him the truth, your deck. Which is like, well, my slides are still getting me deals. But that's what we're proud about. You were a consultant it's in the, the old days. Yeah, a consultant back in the day. No, but it's the deep work that um, is the privilege of investing is that you get to really spend your time thinking about things and doing deep work. And so I, I move around, but um, in kind of year and a half to two year increments. Yeah. Well, it does feel there is a narrative that, uh, with, and we'll talk about the Tigers and D1s of the world in yeah. a little bit, but that a narrative that some of these growth funds come in, are far more prepared yeah. when t speaking with founders and even boards than anyone who was there before them. Yeah. And it turns out that the level of diligence and experience wins over not just price in terms, but also this knowledge and understanding insights from competitive where you learn when, when a founder or a team learns something from an investor, it's remembered. And I don't feel that's done. I think, you know, capital G is an example of that for sure. I actually think that is the most under talked about. People talk about differentiating, oh, build this big sales team, build this, build that. It's so rewarding to talk to somebody that has done work that's not like, I'm just interested in your business. It's more, I'm so interested that I spent weeks of my life trying to learn something that could be valuable to you. And I think um, founders love that. And particularly the founders that I love to work with love that because it's, it's, you know, they won't just be doing it with you. They'll be thinking about what are all the relationships in their life that can that they can learn something and that can add value to the company, which is ultimately what you want. Do you find yourself creating process versus, meaning I'm a founder, you come to me saying I'm interested in investing, 
most founders will then talk to others because it's not fair to shareholders not mm. to versus reacting to process where you know deals are in play and you want to be part of that process. Yeah, this has been such a fascinating change. I joke with some of the younger members of my team when we get access to things like data rooms now, I'm like, this used to be what we got all the time seven or eight years ago. You know, there was a process. There was two, two, three weeks. But I think pretty much all of the most sought after companies um, processes are created. So I think the ones that are, are most common are, I, I think most founders want to run some sort of competitive process, but not boil the ocean. They want to have a process with two or three partners and firms that they really trust, that they know, understand their business, that they would be excited to work with. And at the growth stage, there is an important aspect. I think there is at every stage, but if you don't have a process, you're, it's a lot of trust in determining valuation and market price. And if you have a couple of people, you can get some sort of pricing pressure in there, which, you know, if I was a founder, I would do the same thing. Um, and so that's how I see most of them go down, which is when we come to companies that we're excited about, you know, we have done tons of work. We say, this is our investment thesis. This is everything we know about the business. We, um, this is, we even tell them, this is what we think your metrics are going to be. And then it can be really confirmatory, that diligence process. It can happen in a couple of days because we've done all the work from the outside. We just need to make sure the data matches what we think it is. And you can get things done in just a couple of days, which I would say when I first started again, which isn't that long ago, eight or nine years ago, it would be more like the two or three week process. You had done sector work before, but you hadn't like deeply built your own financial model for a company where you hadn't seen like a single piece of data. So that's how it's changed. You got to be ready to move super quickly, which means you have to be really focused. So my sense is that was all like that until Halloween. I look at the world in holidays, you know, like, and I feel Halloween, our world changed a bit. Um, I was Joe from the Facts of Life. So mine did change a little this Halloween. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Very clever. That's very <laughs> clever. Um, but I think technically it was November 10th was the top. Yes. Um, but has that changed or have in your world yet have you begun to see whether compression names that were competitive are no longer there yeah. just kind of the the 90 day recap yeah. versus the really nine year run up we had to that with a lot of changes we can talk about but love to get just kind of yeah. real time market pulse in yeah, your eyes yeah it's been fascinating i mean um so i would say so i'm on the board of a couple public companies now of uh, companies that have been involved with for a really long time that went public in the last year. And then, of course, lots within our portfolio that near term. So I would say the most significant impact is feeling what it's like uh, to manage a public company right now, especially if you're a first-time CEO and you haven't gotten public in the last 12 months. I mean, I don't know the exact fact, but the data point, but I think it's something like 70% of companies that IPO'd in the last 12 months are under their IPO price. I mean, that is so outrageous. Like that's really for those that have been part of taking companies public or going, you know, in investor roadshows. And th that's a pretty rare time. Um, and that's a lot of stress to be a CEO of those. And these are companies because it's 70%, as you can imagine, most of those companies have hit their plan. It's not like they're going out and whiffing it. They have a, you know, a very clear plan. If you're a well-run company of what you're going to do the first 12 months, you got your beaten raise. These companies are hitting it and they're still 
we've seen massive multiple com uh, compression, as we know, we've seen a reset in the market. So um, that has taken a little bit more of my energy and just thinking about and, and trying to support those companies and think about those that are, that are coming up next, just how you manage that transition. I think it takes a while for the private markets to fully understand it. I mean, I think what we've seen is a couple, I would call not like panic raises, but like, holy shit, this might, sorry, uh, you know, up front. Please. Sorry to Greg's wife. Um, this might be, the party might be close to ending and, but I hear there's a lot of dry powder, you know, the companies I'm involved in, they're asked, like, should we raise a bunch more? Um, so I think you see some of that activity. You see some, certainly when you talk, when I talk to friends at crossover funds and stuff, um, when you're looking at public market data and private market data in the same day and all the time and studying these companies, which I do a lot, most growth stage investors do a lot, you think, man, this company better be really good in the private sector to pay anything close to these valuations because there's some great deals in the public markets. I mean, these are companies that we all looked at, you know, 6, 12, 24, 36 months ago that are you're trading at 50% the price. And so you definitely hear a lot of people scratching their head and trying to figure out what is this going to mean? Maybe spending a little bit more time on the publics if it's a crossover fund. But I still think the most competitive deals are really competitive. And it'll be a couple more months where everybody really says, okay, is, is this the real new reset for, um, for things to, to maybe calm, back, calm down and revert a little bit back to where they used to be? So do you kind of build it? Do you think the, what I call the new breed of growth from durable to addition to mm. D1 to Co2, Insight, mm -hmm. um, Tiger, you think they're going public company shopping right now because of the fact that you could get the same company you loved 12 months ago for 50% well, off? I know they're going public company shopping. I don't know, you know the proportion, but I, when I talk to them and I know, it really looks like, I mean, if you have conviction in a lot of these public companies, they're 50% off a lot of them. So from where people were buying in just 12 months ago. So whether it means that they'll, how much they'll pull out of privates um, or, you know, divert focus, I think nobody totally knows. Um, I mean, this was the same cycle that went in the opposite direction, you know, seven, 10 years ago when they saw, hey, all the value is, is accumulating in the private sector. Companies are just waiting to go public. You know, many years later, we got to go there. And all I know is they're very analytical. Right. Um, so I would expect over time, smart analytical people will go where they see the best returns. And does that mean you get more aggressive because you have a lane that has a little less traffic in it? Or do you think you keep doing what you do? Yeah, you know, I always look at it as like, um, I think growth investing will be competitive forever in the future, and it should be, you know, because it's... First of all, entrepreneurs deserve like a great product, which is capital at a reasonable price and partners who are going to work really hard for them. And, you know, when you look back and think, gosh, you know, investments you could have made 10 years ago, like and did and how well they've done. Um, I think it's hard to, to see a path back to that. I think that so many of the trends that are just so massive that we all see compounding into just gigantic companies. Like, I mean, look at the cloud infrastructure growth rates last quarter. I mean, it's like astounding. Look at digital transformation, stuff in automation. It's just, I think that 
that the secret's out enough and there's enough just massive companies that it will always be competitive. Last couple of years, the best companies, I mean, you could be competing against, well, certainly there's like 50 firms trying to get in. You're seriously competing, competing against a handful. So in the end, it's probably the same because it's only a handful that are going to get a chance to win the very best companies. And um, I don't think that competition will go away. So last question, and this, like I said, we could go all day, but we talk a lot in the early stage about trying to be slightly contrarian yeah. and that if the, everyone's over here, you're too late, it's time to go over here. Does, does that same mentality work at the growth stage? Like, can you afford to be a quote unquote contrarian? Um, or is there too much information and perfect information that you really know the great companies and the not great companies? How do you look at navigating that yeah. in today's market? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is always room for both. And I think um, at the growth stage, it, you know, I, I think there are a, uh, always a handful of companies every year that, you know, it's a consensus view that these things are just massive. And it's really about competitively, like, how do you try to win those deals and be the most value-added partner to that company? Um, but there are always a, that, that's a small handful. I think what's happened in this market is those small handful, it's often the same people. You have to be very, very good to, to, to win those deals and great partners and have CEOs just pounding the table saying, you want to work with this person to the entrepreneur like raising. Um, and then you have a bunch in between that aren't that, that contrarian that, you know, there's been a lot of money chasing. Um, so where I find contrarian, we were talking about this a little before, is like, Sectors go a little in and out of, of popularity. You know, I did a lot of fintech investing, invested in Stripe and, and Credit Karma and Gusto and a bunch of these like six, seven years ago. Did Stripe work? Stripe is okay. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, um, so I think, you know, that then is like everybody's doing that. So I spent the last year and a half in consumer, which Greg and I were chatting about, did some companies I'm super excited about. There were a lot less people in consumer the last year and a half than there were an enterprise SaaS. Like, so I think it's not always a company level, it's sometimes a sector level where things get heated or, or, um, or less crowded. But you know, I, I think it's the same. You, if you wanna invest in great companies, you're gonna have to work super hard and it's gonna be really competitive, but that's kind of how it should be. And I think the other great news is like, there are so many great companies. I mean, when we used to build our growth models, five, six years ago and be like, okay, if this turns out like Salesforce or something, it'll be a big winner. Now you can be like, there's like 50 cloud companies compounding at 50% bottoms up models with much better like long-term unit economics. And it's like, it's exciting. So there's, you know, where there's excitement, there's, um, you know, you also have to work for it. Great place to close. Thank you so much. Applause for Layla. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Greg.